You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's final lesson of the Ruth module, Philip Edwards will explain the meaning of marriage and the blessing of children. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for the latest news and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. So we come to this fourth and uh, final chapter of Ruth this evening. And uh, I'm going to read it to you before we uh, enter into the teaching like we've done week by week. So it's Ruth then and chapter four. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belongs to our, her, to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you'll not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with with his property. At this the kingsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kingsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech. Kilian and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's wife, uh, sorry, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord Lord gives you by your young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and said, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, 
and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better for you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Then, uh, uh, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram the father of Abinadab. Abinadab the father of Narshon. Narshon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Okay, that brings us to the end of our reading of that. So we're just going to focus our attention on that chapter. And like I normally do, we'll do it in two parts. Uh, So I've sort of divided it and we'll just run all the way through. The focus in this chapter turns immediately to the city gate the city gate was the center of life within the city or a town uh, in old testament biblical times it could have been called we'd call it today the business sector of, of of the city it's where all the business all the transactions took on this is where the town people gathered to pick up news and uh, conversations that that were taking part there here deals were made and business was transacted at the city gate. Here the poor waited for justice. It is at the gate the elders of the society met, those that were important, those that carried out judgments and the important businessmen. Remember that verse where Jesus says about his church, he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, of course, what he's talking about when he says, and the gates of hell, he's talking about those who are working with the enemy, those who are responsible for administering the injustices against God's people. He says, these people, those on the other side who are working for evil, they will not prevail. That's what it means by uh, the gates, the gates of hell. So today, Boaz, he goes to the gate because he wants to do a business, a transaction. He, he knows that the, the, the other kinsman that's been mentioned that's closer to Ruth and himself, he will probably be there at some time or past. So he goes, I presume, sort of earlyish in the morning, and anticipating the man sometime in that day will come. When he sees him come in, he calls him to him. And also he calls a number of elders, so they gather together as a group, as it were, and he's going to put to him the transaction or the deal that he wants to uh, bring about with this man. These men, these elders, are there to witness what goes on, and they make judgments, and their word is really final. Their job is to make sure that business is done properly and people aren't cheated, That was the whole purpose of these elders that met at the gate. 
it appears that uh, Naomi has deeds to land. The exact details we don't know anything about. In fact, this is the first time we've ever heard that Naomi even has land. It's sort of just come up at this part of the story. So Boaz first talks to this kinsman who is closer than himself to Ruth, who has almost like um, he, he has the first option on Ruth, the first option to, to, to buy the land that, that's there. So he, he talks to, these, uh, to the other kinsmen and he talks to the elders about what his proposal is uh, regarding the land. I'll just quote it from what it says there. It says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belongs to our brother Elimelech. Now, I don't know, is she selling it to get money? Uh, and obviously she needs money, so it's best she sells it to someone within the family. Uh, that could be the idea. I can't imagine why she would otherwise be selling the land. Or was this part of the plan that Naomi and Boaz had come up with? It's obvious the, that Boaz had spoken to Naomi and they had spoken about the land and they had also spoken about his intention to marry Ruth. Together they sort of decide to, a way to get around this dilemma. What's the dilemma? The dilemma is he is not the first kinsman redeemer. So this, this guy that has the first option, he could, he could marry Ruth and, and give her a, a Leverite child, or he could be the one to purchase the land. And Boaz can do nothing about that. He just has to stand back and, and see what happens. But they've come up with this sort of plan. He doesn't talk about uh, the idea of marrying Ruth, first of all. He just, he just talks about the land. Now, at first, when he's offered the land, he says, yes, I'll take it. Uh, he's probably thinking, well, uh, Naomi should have a child. And, of course, the, the land is then uh, the child's land, and, and I redeem it for her. But, but she's not of a childbearing age. So I'm safe there. She's not going to want a child. So uh, I could just buy the land, give her the money, and that, that would increase my estate, as it were. And whatever land I have, I pass on as an inheritance to my children. He, but, but Boaz has been a bit cute in this, in the way that he does it. After he informs him of this land to buy, he says, oh, well, uh, by the way, if you have the land, then you have to have Ruth as well. She has to become your wife and you have to give her a Leverite child. This is where it's expressed in the Bible. On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth. Interesting. In the first statement, he says, Naomi, who has come back, he doesn't mention Ruth at all. He says, this is all about Naomi and her land. But now when he, he's, he's, he knows that he's intending to, 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 get, to get the land, but he doesn't really want to enter into this Leverite providing of a child, he says, oh, by the way, if you have the land, you've got to have Ruth and you've got to give Ruth a baby. Ruth is, see, she's of marriageable age and she's also of childbearing age. So she, her job is really to replace Naomi. 
in the Leverite responsibility to raise a child for Elimelech. So uh, Ruth is, is giving herself to do this. We looked at this last week. Now the kinsman, he wanted the land, the nearest kinsman, but he didn't particularly want Ruth. And he didn't particularly want to produce a child for Ruth or the responsibility of purchasing the land then producing a child for her and the land becomes his so it would have tied up himself and his money and everything else and so he doesn't want that he was keen to get the land but he didn't want the land and then have to give it away to Elimelech's child I think Boaz had engineered this play mentioning the land first and then Ruth afterwards. He was motivated himself to get the first kinsman to, to say, well, I don't want it anymore then. And, and because you're second, it's, it's over to you. You, you. you can do this. The motivation of Boaz was his love for Ruth. He loved her. He wanted her to be his wife. And he was willing to pay uh, he had the ability to pay and, and, and to give them money and he was doing it for both Ruth's sake and for Elimelech's sake. He was a relative of his and he wanted to obey the law of God and do what God would want him to do. Boaz was clearly placed the nearest kinsman in the situation in which he could do nothing other than offer the right of redemption to him. Boaz was then the next in line. Just one more thing about this Leverite duty. Um, you didn't have to marry the person. You could just be a husband while you were producing a child. And once she had the child, um, that, that was all your responsibility that was done. So you didn't have to enter into full marriage. That wasn't a requirement of the law. Maybe the nearest kinsman um, who has said, well, I, I don't want this. Uh, maybe he was considering his own situation. Maybe he was married and uh, that might have created a problem for him. Uh, and they had children and he was thinking of the inheritance for his own children. Whatever the reason, the Bible doesn't explain that. He steps away from the whole situation. And of course, is that the providence of God? Because remember, as we study Ruth, that's what we're saying this book is all about. It's showing us the providential hand of God. So sometimes, you know, we, we pray about something and we start to move forward in it and some sort of hiccup or problem arises and we start to think, oh, God, are you really in this? And what do you go? Well, this is one of those situations. There's a hiccup. This other kinsman is in the way. But of course, God is providentially working all the time. And as we look to him and trust him, he's working all these things out. We don't know much about Boaz either, do we? We've mentioned this before. Uh, he was probably older. He might have been a, a widower, a bachelor. We don't think he had any children. Uh, it's, it's not obvious uh, in, uh, in his ancestral line. Obed, this child he has, is the only one that's mentioned in his child. By now, this situation, 
with the, uh, the, the elders and the other kinsmen and the discussion that's gone on, it's attracted a number of people, lookers-on. It must have been a very interesting place because uh, when the business went on, you could just stick your nose in, it appears, and just listen to what's going on. It seems, oh, is that how it was? There wasn't like private rooms where you met in uh, because, and because the more interested it was, the more you, you latched onto the thing. Now, I got the impression people like Boaz. Uh, we get that impression from the earlier chapters with his workmen, and he's a generous, kind person. Of course, if we are generous and kind and, and outgoing in that way, then people do generally like those sort of people, and uh, they, they, they're very favoured. So, a, a crowd has gathered now, and they're all listening, and they're, 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 maybe they're all rooting for Boaz, that, that he will get the deal. This is what this man wants. So we can imagine the scene. Not just the elders, but all the people as well. They wanted to witness what was going on now. This is it's an important point, and we'll come to it a little bit later. There's a, a possible note of celebration in the air as we read that they're quite upbeat about the fact that uh, Boaz has eventually got this lovely girl as a wife of his and it's all going to work out really well. There's something we read about here it seems a, a bit odd it's called the ceremony of the shoe. Now uh, in ancient Israel tradition is when you did a, a transaction or a deal with somebody uh, and you agreed it one person I don't know if he actually took a shoe with him or took his shoe off. Um, you know, sometimes when you read about these things, depending how many books you read, you get lots of different opinions about what they think. But the idea is, if the deal was done, you give the person a sandal. I don't know if you gave it and he kept it or gave it back. I'm not sure about all these things. But there was definitely the passing over of a sandal to say that the deal was done. In this case, it was the transfer of the rights from the kinsman to Boaz. As I say, one of the parties, either party, I think, took his shoe off and gave it to the other. And it was like seen by everyone. And the, the giving and receiving of the shoe, was it, it sealed the whole deal. By this, it meant that the kinsman, that closest kinsman, had abandoned his rights of redemption in favour of Boaz. And all the people, it appears, celebrated this fact. It was, you know, he's passed the sandal over, all that sort of thing, and uh, it was all very exciting. Now, this idea of people publicly seeing what's going on and rejoicing over the fact that there's going to be a marriage is, is an aspect of marriage that should not be lost. Um, we're getting ourselves in this nation into a funny place with marriages. Now, I don't want to talk too much about it because I might get myself into some hot water here. So I don't choose to get into hot water if I don't have to. But we are creating a bit, a bit of a strange situation with marriage. Also, there's another thing about marriage. Um, it, it's, it's coming to a, a thought that it's not necessary if, if I love this person and I commit to them, why have I got to go through this ceremony of marriage? This marriage should be a private thing, perhaps between the, the two parties, and, and that's all there is to it. 
why why should the public why why should we have a ceremony why should people be invited why should people witness everything but historically and even in our own nation historically society has always had an interest in marriage i don't know anything that attracts more people on television than a royal marriage everyone loves to see them and it's not just you want to see uh, what what dress you know the the princess wears or whatever it is that's all very exciting i'm sure for you ladies uh oh that's another uh chauvinistic statement sorry about that um you know perhaps men like watching these things as well i don't, I don't know don't worry dan we won't get into too much trouble with this one um but but the idea is that we want to see it we there is a thing about marriage that interests the public coming and watching now despite all the very different cultures that there are this thing is quite universal that people come and gather to celebrate a wedding both in the old and the new testament people came remember when jesus went to the the marriage at cana we get the idea there was quite a lot of people there well if not he did he did convert quite a lot of of, of uh, jars of water into wine i mean umpteen gallons of the stuff so i presume there are a lot of people there and usually lots of people came to a wedding the whole community came to the wedding both old and new testament and there was a sense within the marriage there was a part of it that was very personable for the two people who were getting wed it was about their love and their relationship but there was also a part to the marriage that there was something very social about it there was something that had a relationship not just with the two people but with them and society their part they would play in society as it were one of the three bases on which the marriage covenant stands because we mustn't forget that a marriage is not just a marriage ceremony it's a covenant that two people enter into and of course that's one of the reasons why public must be there why people must see it that's why it's done in a public way because it is a covenant in Genesis 2 and 24, and we've read this verse a couple of times and we might read it a couple of times tonight. It's a very striking verse and it's very important in this whole aspect of marriage. In Genesis 2 and 24, it says, A man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. I've, I've read lots about this and there's lots of applications of this verse and this is just another one a man will leave his father and mother the leaving apparently is a public declaration that a marriage is being made in in society children lived with their parents until they were going to get married i know things have changed in our society today but people or, or youngsters lived with their parents they only ever moved away from their parents when they were starting a new family of their own that it was a declaration that they were getting married it is the occasion on which the couple together receive the public support of their friends and society they are creating as it were a new social unit they're becoming a family in their own right 
and as part of society once they start a new family they are part of the society in a new way prior to getting married and, and coming away from their parents they were part of their their family's culture as it were their family's grouping but now they're getting married they're coming into society and forming their own group as it were creating a part more in society it is the occasion on which the couple also accept their vocation to be a new unit in society they're accepting they're leaving their parents and everything their parents were to be this new society they too will have children and they will play their part in society the idea from god's perspective is that they would live out in society the relationship which in some way mirrors god's covenant relationship with his people that people will see what God is like with being in covenant with his people by looking at this couple as they live in covenant with their children. So what we have within the family is we see a picture of God teaching us. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Uh, Bonhoeffer uh, a famous uh, German pastor and theologian he said this once in one of his sermons he said marriage is more than your love for each other it is a higher dignity and power for it is God's holy ordinance in your love you see only the heaven of your happiness but in marriage you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind your love is your own private possession but marriage is something more than personal it is a status it is an office that joins you together in the sight of God and the sight of man which is true isn't it so you can have a relationship with someone and you can love someone and even we see today that many couples just come and live together but there's something missing there is something missing in doing that it is that before god they haven't entered into this covenant arrangement this this covenanting together this coming together and standing in society and before god as people who have entered into a covenant relationship today's questions then are why get married why bother with a piece of paper i tell you it's far more than a piece of paper if we are to answer in terms of responsibility to society in this particular story the society are the elders and all those people at the gate they are watching what's going on they are witnesses to what boaz is saying and doing and of course he makes this declaration i want to marry this woman this is a very public thing that i'm doing see they have an interest in the formation of a new family group public witness is always an aspect of covenant making see when we got married we entered into a covenant we stood before God and we made promises we made them on an oath as it were so we stood in a covenant with God 
and with the person that we married. But there's also a, a personal value to this idea of getting married publicly. The public witness, when everyone sees you enter this covenant and make these covenant promises to one another, it serves as a safety net to the marriage when it starts maybe to come under pressure or strain and and this wonderful you know uh, idyllic life of being happily married and in love with each other and, uh, and and just seeing everything with the eyes of love as it starts to crack a little bit at the edges the fact that you've made these promises with a, a, a public group of people all watching you and you made these that's that acts as a safety net as it were to keep you together now i don't know if that holds the same today but you can imagine in biblical times where everyone knew everyone in a community and and all of you were god-fearing people and you made covenants to each other it, it held the whole thing together a lot better that's all disintegrating a little bit today it, it it's sort of falling apart a little bit it's also uh, the idea of doing it publicly getting married and, and making promises in front of people it's a constant reminder that the promises were made and obligations were entered into and people heard you say that you said I will I will I will do these things I promise to do these things and also prayer prayer was made for for the couple that, that God's grace and resources would be poured upon these people that they could hold it together in difficult times the vow, the vows then were not simply a private matter they become a very public matter and the public were witnesses to the promises and the vows that were made before God by these two people a sense of accountability to the wider Christian fellowship helps us to maintain our promises and act to support us in the harder times when our commitment to loving faithfulness is put to the test so they were witnesses the elders were witnesses and the people were now the immediate response of the people to this uh, demonstration of redemption love it was twofold it was to witness what was said and done first of all and then there was a prayer that was said for all the parties involved through the self-sacrificing act of boaz then ruth has been established as belonging within the people of God. By what he's done, he's brought her into the very family of God. Now, she had faith, but she was a Moabitess woman. But by what he does, he brings her into the family, you see. She's brought in. She was no longer just a Moabite woman who believed in God like an alien, but she was brought into the family by the very act of what he did. Isn't that what Jesus has done? Jesus has brought us into the family. He's our kinsman redeemer, and he has brought us into the family. Boaz has expressed in practice what he believed to be true of God's actions towards his people. Now, this is the calling of all of us. People who are redeemed are to be the agents through which other people are redeemed. So 
she was being redeemed she was being brought into the family this witness is coupled with prayer uh, for God's blessing uh, on the new family as we've read through these chapters of Ruth we've seen prayer all the way through uh, prayer at different times about different situations remember in uh, chapter 1 and verse 8 Naomi's response as a daughter-in-law plans to return home she says may the Lord show kindness to you as you are shown to your dead and to me in chapter 2 and verse 4 remember Boaz's greetings to his workers uh, and their reply he said the Lord be with you the Lord bless you they called back in chapter 2 and 20 uh, uh, 2 and 12 sorry we see gener uh, Boaz is generously welcomes Ruth to glean in the fields he says to her may the Lord repay you for what you have done may you be richly rewarded by the Lord the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge and then in 2 and 20 Naomi's prayer of thanksgiving as Ruth returns home with the news of Boaz the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Boaz's final response to Ruth on the night visit, he said to her, remember when she came to the threshing floor, he prayed to her, he said, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Now, all the people respond. First, they witness what has been said, which is vital to the whole marriage commitment thing. They witness it, but now they pray as well. In this book, we see that uh, every aspect of life draws the people to pray. Everything, uh, whether it's a sad event or a positive event, in misery and joy, we find the different parties are praying to God all the time. From the routine to the extraordinary, uh, the surprise things, we find the people praying. For daily work and for social activity, we see prayers. Uh, and then in the private moments of people's lives, we see that people are praying all lived in faith prayer prayer is an expression of your faith it says I believe in a God I believe in a God first who's there and a God who cares and a God who who wants to intervene in my life we believe in a God and we invite him to come into our lives so they have been witnesses to an act of redemptive love and now they are seeking God's blessing on it. Their prayer is for Boaz. The prayer is also for the new wife and a prayer for the family. Let's look at this prayer for the wife. This is what they say. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel why why Rachel and Leah well from Rachel and Leah and Jacob's concubines came the whole nation of Israel may Ruth too become an ancestress of this famous race may she have descendants within the family and within the purposes of God their prayer 
is that she would fit into the purposes of God and that God would bless her with children and the children would be important uh, in, the, in the purposes of what God was doing. Then they pray for the husband. He said, may you have standing in Ephratha and be famous in Bethlehem. May Boaz be enriched through his marriage and his offspring is what they're praying for. Not only were they concerned with the fact that he was uh, providing a child for Elimelech to uh, his name would be continued, but he himself would be blessed through having children and his name too would be established. And finally, they pray for the family to be. May your family be like the family of Perez. Perez was the son of a Levite relationship. We mentioned this last week. He was the uh, he was the twin, one of the twin sons of uh, Judah and Tamar. So there's a parallel. Both these men came from Bethlehem. They both were having Levite uh, children. Perez was one of the ancestors of the Bethlehemites and he was a descendant of Judah. Perez was certainly one of Boaz's ancestors and they said just as Perez was blessed we want you Boaz to be blessed in the same way that uh, something special will happen in your life. The people prayed that Boaz will like his ancestors have a numerous and a renowned family of descendants. And then to the second part of this uh, chapter that we're looking at. I want to look a little bit more at this marriage covenant. The primary biblical picture of marriage is a covenant. Um, I hope next year when we do our studies we will look at covenants. Uh, it, it sort of it takes um, it takes two modules actually to cover covenants because uh, we can study it in in great depth. Um, I sometimes I'm afraid of going too deep because you get lost when you get too deep, don't you? It gets a bit dark down there. So I might do it in one. We'll just have to see how it works out as I uh, refresh the, the studies on it. But it's important we fully understand covenant because we are in a covenant relationship with God. We know what marriage covenant is and because God says the, the whole purpose of, of being married and having a marriage covenant is that you might understand the covenant that you have with God and there are so many similarities between the two. So God's covenant relationship with his people are described in marriage language. Human married life derives its meaning from and is to be patterned on covenant. God's covenant relationship first with his people and then Christ's covenant relationship with his church because we are the bride of Christ. He is entering into a covenant relationship with us. All our lives then, the things that God has designed for our life, they are teaching, teaching us all the time. Um, as children we learn what it is to be children of loving parents which is like children of God. 
when we grow up and become parents ourselves, we understand it from God's perspective, how he loves his children. So just in life's normal uh, activities, God is teaching us about relationship, uh, childhood and then parenthood. And then in the marriage relationship, he's teaching us about covenant relationship, covenant relationship with him and our covenant relationship with Christ, the church and its covenant relationship with him. In this story, we can discern three main elements of this marriage covenant relationship. The first is the promise of commitment or committed love between the husband and the wife. In the, in the marriage covenant, it is, it is taken for granted there is a commitment of love between the husband and wife. When we are saved and we become a child of God, we enter into a covenant relationship with Christ. We love Christ and Christ loves us. The, the depth that we go in our Christian life or, or the heights that we, we, we aspire to is all dependent on our love for Christ. If we love him, we love him, we will follow him. If we love him, we will obey him. If we love him, we will enter into a deeper relationship with him. So it's, it's all about that first thing. If a husband doesn't love his wife, the marriage isn't going to go very far, or the wife, not the husband. And it's the same in the Christian relationship. If we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind, our strength, we're not going to go very far. We can study till the cows come home. We're not going to go far unless we enter into this deep loving relationship. The second part is the public covenant making by which a new family unit is created in society. We are the covenant people of God. We are of the kingdom of God. We're part of God's new society. We take our place in society like a married couple would. We take our place in the kingdom of God, in his new society. And thirdly, the developing personal communion between the partner in relationship with sexual union symbolized and deepens that relationship. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. So we enter in to one another and the, 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 the relationship that we have deepens through our intimacy. Uh, couples, couples that don't share intimacy, they, they grow apart, they will grow apart in time. And same with Christ, if we're not intimate with Christ and, and, and we are into him and he is into us, then we will break apart in time. So this is symbolized through the, the sexual relationship within the marriage. Again, the writer of Genesis, um, you could express that, that passage in Genesis 2 and 24 the same. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. For Boaz, all three parts of the marriage covenant are to, have, have come together in this relationship. His love for Ruth, our love for God. The public witness of the wedding, that um, it's a public thing. Uh, isn't it interesting that Christ says, if you confess me, then I'll confess you. The first thing we're supposed to do is declare the fact 
that we're into this relationship we proclaim the relationship we have and the third part is, of course is this intimate union between the two in the thinking of our author whoever wrote this book and we don't know who it was we think it's uh, Samuel and other biblical writers physical sexual union belongs with only within the context of a committed loving and publicly known relationship sexual relationship out of marriage throughout the whole scripture is frowned upon it's not encouraged it's not simply for the the safeguard or the rights of any children that might be born but it's part of the meaning of one flesh the understanding that marriage means a complete distinct partnership of one man with one woman for life that's God's plan one man one woman for life symbolized by the deepening through the sexual relationship of the two we move on then to consider this gift of a child from the prayer which the elders have just offered it's clear they regard children as a gift from God uh, this is underlined by the author's comments if we read Ruth 4 and 13 uh, it says this so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and it says then then he went with her and it could go on to say and she gave him a son but it doesn't it put something between and he went with her and gave her a son it says this then he went with her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave him a son so God is in everything God is involved in every aspect of our life her conception was not simply because she was with Boaz but God was working in there giving them a son if there's one theme then that we've heard over and over again over the weeks more than any other and it dominates the whole book of Ruth it is the overruling providence of God and our human dependence upon him God is sovereignly working in every aspect of your life whether you understand what he's doing or you don't understand it he is working in every part of your life God is the source of life and its blessings are a gift from his hand every gift everything in your life everything that you have received everything that you have got has come from the hand of God everything in your life has come from his hand it hasn't come from anywhere else simply his hand and particularly here the conception of a child is understood as a gift from God there there is a joyful outcome to this story the son born to Ruth is also therefore born to Naomi in the family of Elimelech again this is surrounded by prayer and thanksgiving as you read as we've read that together they're praying all the time they're thanking God they're worshiping God all the time for what God is doing they're asking God to do things 
It is this prayer which brings the story really to full circle and proclaims again the providential rule and care of God. The focus is now back to Naomi for the very last bit. Actually, as I read this book, I thought, well, they could have called it Naomi, not Ruth at all. Well, there's a reason for calling it Ruth, but there's more about Naomi. The whole first chapter is about Naomi, and, and then uh, in the third and fourth, it's, it's more about Naomi than Ruth. Anyway, it's about Ruth. It's called Ruth. I'm not arguing with that Well, for one minute. Okay, so the focus now is back with Naomi. She left Moab. She was bereft of a husband and sons. She was greeted in Bethlehem by the women who saw her grief and heard her bitterness. Remember, although she expressed bitterness, she wasn't bitter. You can express bitterness without becoming bitter. We should be honest before God and say, God, this hurts. God, I don't get this. And it's making me feel really, uh, I don't know, upset or uh, whatever I'm feeling, Lord. But that doesn't mean we have to become bitter towards him. So, so we have to be honest with our feelings and, and our expressions. Now they're sharing her joy. Hear what they say. They say, praise to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. Again, the sense of family solidarity is emphasized here. We, we picked this point up before. The child, the child is born to Ruth but it's also born to Naomi. Now, you have to get your head around this a little bit. We said last week, her love for Naomi just, just enabled her to enter into this, this whole business of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, she could have gone off and, and just married any young man of the town, but that's not what she wanted to do. She wanted to honor Naomi honor God and so she entered into this kinsman redeemer relationship because of her great love for Naomi so the child that she bore wasn't simply her child she bore the child for Naomi and the women said to her he will restore your life and sustain you in old age it was as though she had the child it was her child as the Leverite son of Marlon, he was heir to Elimelech. Through him, Elimelech's family name had not died out. And from that day to this, his name has not died out because his ancestor was Christ and Christ is alive today. So the child that was born to her, he will never die. His ancestor will live forever and ever. Through, through this child, God's purposes were carried forward in the world. But the purpose of God on the wider canvas of world history has also been accomplished, as we shall see. The Bible seems to have a lot to say about genealogies in this passage of Scripture. And genealogies... They're often quite boring to read. Now, come on, be honest. 
you can't even pronounce the names properly and when you're halfway through you you think how far have I got to go and so you just skip that bit because you think there's nothing in that for me Lord I'm not going to get anything out of that so you'll understand why I'm not reading every word because uh, in fact instead of it blessing me it'll do me some harm um, but but genealogies are important well you knew that because god put them there and he doesn't waste paper i i'm surprised that the bible is so thin and there's so little of it uh, so anything that's there is of vital importance and uh, we perhaps need to just understand why well why genealogies then well it reminds us of the one very important fact that we're never to forget and that is our interconnectedness as human beings with our generations past each conception is a gift from God if Obed was a gift from God a gift of conception then every child that's ever born is a gift from God every conception is a gift from God that's why probably we're so angry about abortion because whether the person wanted the child or not God still gifted them with a child so as a as a gift from God it's a gift within a context at the level of our genetic inheritance our physical descendancy as it were who we are we are in many respects the produce of our history you are who you are because of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents you're not an accident you were created by God and your ancestry your genealogy is important we are who we are because of our ancestors our history matters where we've come from matters I thank God for my ancestors perhaps you say well you're fortunate because you know your parents were Christians and your grandparents were Christians and maybe before them they were Christians you may be a third fourth or fifth generation Christian well to whom God has given much much is expected and so uh, whether you're just the first generation Christian of your family or you're the second or the third our ancestry is important to us it's precisely this sense of history which is captured in these boring and this in this particular case tacked on list of names as it were at the end of a chapter we read this little phrase there it says this then is the family line now you might think what's so special about that well only that God keeps saying this then let me give you a couple of references in Genesis 2 and 4 he says this is the account of heaven and the earth when they were created this is the account of then in Genesis 5 1 he says this is the written account of Adam's line and here he says this then is the family line it's as also 
as if it were there's a continuing story that he's telling right from Genesis all the way through this then he says this then is why it is this then is is what it happens it indicates a sense of a developing story so from Perez who was one of the uh, twin sons of Judah and Tamar through various generations we come to Boaz and so to Obed his son Obed was the father of Jesse who was the father of Israel's greatest king see there's no accidents their genealogy is important the reference to them is important now I'm going to take you to a genealogy so don't yawn uh, just cover it up if you feel a little bit like that but I don't ever get many of my students yawning I think they're tired before they come okay anyway so uh, let me take you to that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 this is the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 I mean when I when I speak about this you'll say this is so fascinating I've never been so excited by genealogy thanks Philip okay a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham even that sentence he just says Abraham who was the first king David who was the supremo king the the archetypal king to Jesus Christ so he says this is it so he sets it off with an exciting sentence now this is what he says he says Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah then when it adds a little bit on it's very interesting and his brothers so Judah was the first son of the twelve and he says just remember there were eleven other brothers who became the, the tribes of, of Israel, as it were. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Well, you think, why, have he, why has he mentioned his brother here? Well, you go read the story. It's so exciting. It's where one child is coming out of, of the womb of the spirit and the other one grabs his leg. Remember that story? Well, if not, go back to that passage of scripture and read it. It's so exciting. So why doesn't he just mention Perez and go on to the next? Because this little story is interesting. And this is fascinating. The next one, whose mother was Tamar. In this list of genealogies, they only mention four women. And why do they make reference to these women? Well, Tamar was vital, uh, interesting. She wasn't a Jewess, she was a Canaanite woman. And she was very courageous and bold and strong. And so when we get to David, we see some of the strength of his ancestry. So where the scripture explains to us in other places the stories about these people, we see something of the ancestry of, of David, the strength of character of these people. And Tamar is a very strong, courageous woman. And she's listed there amongst the genealogies of the man, men because she is so important. See, I'm getting all the women on my side now. I'm a smart preacher I am, okay. So, so, so she's mentioned there, Tamar. And she says, and of course, Tamar, uh, Judah, 
Uh, Tamar and Judah have these twins and one of them is Perez the Perez we're talking about here Perez was the father of Hezron no women no no one else mentioned Hezron the father of Ram Ram the father of Abinadab Abinadab the father of Nashon no other names mentioned here Nashon the father of Salmon Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Ruth (laughs) they've done it again you see, just as they bring Tamar in, they bring Ruth in. Now you can read a whole story about Tamar. You can read this whole book about Ruth because these are vital, vital women, okay, in the whole thing. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You say, I know Rahab. She was another courageous woman. So we've got Tamar and we've got Rahab, both Canaanite women, and now we've got Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman. So they, they're not, none of these women are Jewish women. They've been brought in, as it were, by these Jewish men. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of, and now they have to mention him, King David. They don't just say David, they say King David. Well, all of these were kings okay you could say well he was the first official king but king david and it says david was the father of solomon whose mother had been they don't say Bathsheba; they say who had been uriah's wife now if you know the story of Bathsheba and what happened to uriah she her name isn't mentioned but her husband is mentioned in the genealogies of christ isn't that fascinating poor man he sacrificed for david's sin really and yet he's mentioned there but bathsheba isn't she's the one that's entered into the sin and he is the one who is brave and courageous so when you come down and see the genealogies of david very courageous brave brave women brave men coming down to being king and of course the line carries on all the way down to Jesus now we had a question last week uh it was Betty really and unfortunately she's not here but um, I, I sort of I sort of answered it but I, I did a little bit more homework I hope you did some homework this week not just me uh did a little, little bit of homework this week and uh she said was was Boaz's mother a prostitute well if you read the story of Rahab it says that Rahab was a prostitute only when you dig around it might not mean prostitute I wish the Bible wouldn't do that it could have meant innkeeper it says in some places otherwise uh, in other scriptures I read she could have been a temple uh, as it were goddess a temple goddess Uh, so uh, yeah uh, anyway was she a prostitute I, I don't know anyway uh, interesting interesting stuff okay uh, so did I make the genealogy exciting was it the first time you've ever got excited about genealogy you see it's fascinating I know this is just a simple bit of it and some of those Old Testament ones but if we knew what all the names were and what all these people did I mean it would just make it for fascinating reading and so fascinating here so the book of Ruth then contains as it is the inside story 
of the spiritual and moral background of the genealogies which play a significant part in Israel's history. David, uh, David was just, um, everything was important about David. It seems the whole of Israel was focused on the man David. So to know his genealogy, where he come from, his ancestors were important. So the book contains a historical picture of the family life of the ancestors of David. There's Tamar. Okay, there's Rahab. There's Ruth, specially mentioned. So we see women of tremendous character and strength coming through. The ancestors of David. That's what I mean by if you knew what your ancestors were like, you would know why you're like you are. You're the product of your ancestors, just like David was. And also, it intends to show that David's ancestors, they walked upright before God. They were men and women of piety and singleness of heart. The brief genealogy in this particular book, it speaks of a historical continuity of the covenant processes of God from Abraham to the life and death and resurrection of Christ and beyond into the life and the interconnectedness of the family of the Christian church. The Christian church is the historical covenant community of God. We are part of this enormous family that has great ancestry. This should deliver us from this individualistic faith that so many Christians have, just you and God. No, it's not just you and God. It's you and me and the church and all the church that's gone before you. They're your family. Just as you can't say, well, it's just about me and not my sister and my brother and my mum and dad and uncle. They're family. And so we are the family of God. So we need to be delivered from this individualistic way of thinking. When you read the Bible, you're reading about your family. Ruth is one of your ancestors. Boaz is one of your ancestors because we're all in the family of God. It will help us to understand our Bible should be read within the context of community. This is often we read our Bible and it's about God speaking to me. It's about me. No, God speaks to a community of people. It will help us to understand the traditions of the church all through when you read church history and we could do church history as a a, a module as well when you read it you think oh this is this is it's terrible sometimes it's and yet it's your family it's your history you are the the product the result of all this that has gone before two thousand years of church history has produced you you are the result of all that history that has gone before why because it's your family they're your family it will help us to understand the historical communion of the saints what on earth does that mean philip it sounds like you got it from a church of england prayer book okay all the saints through all the ages in every culture are members of christ's body and we should remember this when attempting to understand biblical truth 
Uh, if you travel the world and see what the church is and what it's like in different places, it's vastly different from what it is in the UK. And as you see the difference and the, the, the different shades of it and colours of it, and I mean, we all have the same basic truth, and yet we, f we fully understand the communion of the saints, uh, all the different denominations that we have. And we have hundreds and hundreds of denominations. We are one big family and we see things and we reflect on things somewhat differently. The covenant family of God spans the centuries. It is the family we have been invited to belong. The whole life of the nation of Israel, as I said, was, was bound up with their king. The importance of kingship in Israel was tied to the life of the archetypal King David. Everyone was judged against King David. King David was the greatest king. The first real king, I mean, he followed after Saul, I know, but the, the, the great king and his life in terms of physical descent was linked, was linked to who? To the story of a Moabite girl gleaning barley in a field miles from her home. It's linked to the caring mother-in-law and a loving kinsman. It's linked to the nighttime conversation at the threshing floor. It's linked to the willingness of a wealthy farmer to go beyond the requirements of the law in his care for the needy. In short, it is the ordinariness of the events of lives of ordinary people that God is working his purposes out in. Do you know I love Ruth? because she's so ordinary. She's not even a Jewess. She's a Moabite. I just love it. She's so ordinary. She is so nothing. And just, I'm ordinary. I'm nothing. And you know, the truth is, we're all ordinary. And we're all nothings. Every one of us. But you see, God is working his purposes through us. When Christ our Savior was born of David's line, in that same town of Bethlehem, he was born into a family of ordinary people. Isn't that exciting? Jesus himself came from an ordinary family. And they too, by their willing obedience to God, who is gracious, were instruments of God's providential purpose in the world. Remember, he came to Mary. Now, I'm not taking anything away from Mary, please don't be offended, but she was just a little Jewish girl, poor, ordinary, not special at all. And remember when the Lord came to her through the angel, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said so simple, so ordinary. The simplicity of her response of an ordinary person to God, that's Mary. Our faith, our ordinary lives, our decisions too are part of God's providential and gracious care. And the God who called Ruth is the God who called 
us to Christ. It's the same God. It was the same call. We came with the same simplicity that Ruth came. We came with the same simplicity that Mary came with. One of the most wonderful experiences, I believe, in the next world will be, we'll all be one. There's no pecking order. It doesn't matter where you go in this world, there's a pecking order. If it's on a sports field, if it's in a workplace, if it's in church, there's a pecking order. Somehow, that will be totally eradicated in the next world. We will be one. We will be one. Just, we will be one with Christ and one with each other. I'm, we've never lived with that. That is going to be such a wonderful experience. Just one of the wonderful experiences in the next world. May we, like Ruth, pledge our willingness and our loving obedience in response to God's gracious invitation to enjoy our place under the refuge of his wings. He's called all men and women to come into that place of safety. Ruth 2 and 12. It may be the second most important verse in this book. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, he prayed for her, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's what we've done. We've come to take refuge under his wings and to experience his providential blessing day after day in our lives. God bless you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson and the final lesson of our Ruth module. And actually, that is our final lesson for the Bible Academy year. We hope you've enjoyed coming along in person, on Zoom, and listening to us online. And we hope you return in September when we will have a whole new set of modules. A big, big thank you from all the team at Arise Ministry. Without you, this is not possible. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.